Well, tonight we get started in the gospel of grace. I looked through my library and did kind of a tertiary look and glance at the number of commentaries I have on this particular book. It exceeds a hundred. I have three commentary sets on this one book that exceed six volumes. This is the meat of the New Testament. And so as we draw our attention now to this great epistle that Paul wrote to a church that was in one of the darkest places on the planet, a place that was a seat of worldly power, a place that was as adversarial to the Lord as existed anywhere in the known world, a place that was bound up in the worship of Caesar and of flesh. It was a place much like our world today. And so as Paul writes this letter to Roman Christians, he's writing to Christians that are in a hostile environment. And so you can see that very much like our world today, Paul was writing to a church that had a steep task ahead of it, a difficult existence ahead of it. And as we study the book of Romans, this book that is really an epistle, it's not a gospel, but it may as well be, as I like to refer to it, as many do, the gospel of grace. It's a letter that is filled with doctrinal truth. It is the deepest of all of the doctrinal books that we have in the Bible. And so if you were to look to one book, you could actually take the book of Romans, and if you took out the entirety of the rest of the Bible, including the Gospels, you would have all of the major doctrines of faith contained in the book of Romans. And so this is, this is the meat of the Gospel. And it is... Uh, a book that will transform your life and it will fill you with grace. You know, in our world, the world needs truth to be sure. We, we have to speak truth, but we must speak that truth in grace. And if you have the grace and not the truth, then you have really a lie. But if you have the truth without grace, then you'll have brutality. You'll have a way to wound. You'll have, in essence, what the law did for the Jewish people. You'll have a set of rules and guidelines and boundaries. You'll have do's and don'ts. And so in the book of Romans, we find this balance, and it is balanced immensely towards the grace of God. And so as we begin, let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we again are just so grateful that we live in a country where we are free to gather together as your church. Lord, we're not as it is right now in so much of the world under any threat. No one will storm through the doors with the government badge on attempting to have us incarcerated. But that really was the world that Paul lived in. It was dangerous to preach the gospel. In some ways, our world is heading there. But Lord, tonight we are free and we're grateful for that freedom. Pray that you would speak to us through the wonder that is your word. We pray that your grace would be magnified in every page. We pray that you would work in us to accomplish, to will, and to do your perfect pleasure as we begin this book. God, please set the foundation firm. Cause us to stand in that grace whereby we have been saved. We bless you, we praise you, we ask all of this in the wonderful, the gracious, the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Romans 1. In verse 1 it says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, 
declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness and by the resurrection of the dead. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he commented on these first three verses, uh, took about 245 pages. I will not do that tonight. You, you can see the depth and the richness with which this book begins, and it really doesn't end until we get to the end of the book. But as you think of these things, so many revivals throughout the course of human history, and especially in early America and in England in the 1700s, really the book of Romans was the center of that. May 24th of 1738, uh, a very discouraged missionary uh, went very unwillingly uh, to a religious meeting in London. And it was at that meeting that a miracle took place. And he wrote in his memoirs, at a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed and I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation and for the assurance it was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That unwilling missionary was none other than John Wesley. John and Charles Wesley, the Wesley brothers responsible for Methodism, for planting the seed of that entire denomination during that time. Martin Luther, whom most of you know uh, well as the father of the Reformation, would be touched by this book, by verse 17, which we'll at least read tonight. And as he, he gets to this verse and he, he looks at the truth contained in it, and, and he declares to himself, the just shall live by faith. And he'd grown up in a world that was filled with Catholicism. And he would uh, pin his 95 thesis, nail it to the All Saints Church door at Wittenberg, and, and would announce his absolute aversion to what the Catholic Church had become, which was a gigantic organization that actually, for all intents and purposes, sold forgiveness of sin. Martin Luther heard this story. But there as John Wesley and his brother Charles would follow after him, heard those things, that Wesleyan revival that would start in England in the 18th century, by the time it would spin around, it would touch the likes of George Whitfield. It would touch Charles Wesley, John's brother. That work would break forth in, in England, and it would eventually reach here in America. And so great was the depth of that revival, and I share it for this reason. The Wesleyan revival in England was responsible for the Industrial Revolution. It was the Industrial Revolution that changed the circumstances, the living circumstances of the people of Europe. And the reason it did so is that when people came to face to face with the grace of God, they, they saw the depth of character that one should have if one was a Christian. It, it taught them to work efficiently. It taught them that their time was actually God's. It, it taught them to develop all of their skills and talents in a way that would honor the Lord. It, it taught them biblical principles for finance, the handling of money. And, and ultimately, it was the change of people's hearts that caused the nation to do well. Why do I say that? Because we need that very thing tonight in America. Our, our problem, as I've said before, is not in the White House. It's not who's our president. The problem that we face in America is that Jesus Christ is no longer Lord to the glory of God the Father in our country. And because that is largely true, it's not universally true, and it's probably not true much at all in this room. Most of us, I would uh, venture a guess in this room, know the Lord, love the Lord, or serving the Lord. But that is not true with our nation. In fact, our nation is going the opposite direction. And the answer lies here, contained in the book of Romans. That the just, you see, whether you think about it or not, 
you have been justified by the blood of the Lamb. The penalty that was upon your head, your life, the sin that you've engaged in that had separated you from God, your books were balanced, payment was made, the debt was cleared by the blood of Jesus Christ. The just, those who are justified, in other words, shall live by faith. Not by the arm of flesh, not by bank account, not by investment, not by any other thing, but the just, we who have been justified by faith are also to live by faith, to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. This letter would be carried uh, by Centuria, a sister back to the church there in Centuria, by uh, a lady, a sister Phoebe. We're going to meet her in chapter 16. And so this story is filled with amazing women, uh, incredible godly men. Uh, it has in it the answers to life's questions. You know, those who struggle with depression, this book is for you. Those who struggle with your own value, this book is for you. Those who wonder if God loves you, this book is for you. If you've ever wondered what's going to happen to the nation Israel, this book is for you. If you want to know what it means to follow hard after God, this book is for you. And so the book of Romans, as we introduce it tonight, here in the first 17 verses, Paul basically seeks to link himself to the Roman readers. Now, you have to imagine that in that day and time, they didn't Skype. Uh, nobody had a, you know, any, any type of a phone book. You couldn't look, oh, yeah, well, that's Paul. He lives on such and such a street. They didn't have those kind of things. You could not yelp his name. There was no way for anybody to know the Apostle Paul. And so, as was the custom during that day, instead of signing their name at the end of a letter, they would sign it at the beginning. And then they would give their qualifications as to why they were able to write this actual letter. And so that's what we find here as Paul opens this letter up. And so as he writes that he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Remember that apostles were not made. They didn't go to seminary. As a matter of fact, seminaries didn't exist. As a matter of fact, the Bible didn't exist as we know it. These letters, many of them were in circulation at the time that Paul wrote, but likely just the Gospels. You may have seen a couple of his original letters, his first letters, may have been in circulation in the church. But there, there was no way of identifying these people. And so when they would make a case for who they were, they would explain what it is that they were trying to convey to the people to whom they sent the letter. And so Paul initially, in these first seven verses, lists his credentials. In the first three verses uh, that we've already read, actually the first four verses contain uh, those, those things. And so Paul lists those credentials. And firstly, and I want to address this, uh, Paul says that he was a slave. And this is a word that I frankly wish were not in our Bibles. I think I can say that to you tonight, but it is there. And so we need to understand it within its biblical context. And so when you think about that word, uh, what he was really saying was that uh, this, this word that he uses is, is douloi or doulos. It's a, it's a bond slave. It's someone who voluntarily sold themselves into the service of someone else. Now, why would somebody do that? Uh, many people have looked at this word, and as a matter of fact, there are some uh, argumentation that goes on back and forth that we ought to actually just take the word out because of its context in our modern world. But Paul used it very plainly, and it would have been understood very clearly at that time. And so we need to understand it in that context. Why would he use it? Why, why do you think the Apostle Paul first? It's context. Slavery was unbelievably prevalent during that day and time. And the reason that I say that is because in our world, in our day and time, and I'll give you an, a precise example, and I hope that you can understand it, and please stay with me until we get rid of the, the stigma that's attached to this word in the church. We need to understand it from a biblical context, not the context of the evil that's happened in our world in the recent history, to which some of us would be very much bent towards that world just making us absolutely incensed and for good reason. 
But in the context, they didn't have jobs as we know it. But what we do as people, in essence, whether you think about it or not, when you take a job, you are actually selling yourself for an eight-hour, nine-hour, ten-hour day. And you offer to do that for X number of dollars. And at the end of a week or two weeks, you get a paycheck. So in that sense, we actually still do the same thing that was done during that time, except during that time, people normally were not compensated. They lived a subsistence living. And so when someone would go into slavery, they would totally understand it. And in fact, the economies of ancient Egypt, Greece, and Rome were based on that labor pool. A labor pool of the common slave. We make it really clear. Slavery was then, is now, repugnant. It is evil, and make no mistake about that aspect of it. But it was the reality. The second thing is it was reality to many people because there weren't minimum wage jobs, because you didn't go out and, you, you know, you didn't go and type out a resume and send it off to people. You didn't go to a vocational school. You, you really had few opportunities. And so in that sense, uh, because there were no social programs, there was no social safety net, there was no way for your family to be provided for, if you fell on hard times, you had pretty much no choice but to become a douloi. Someone who said, I'm going to sell myself to you. Very often, in fact, when you look at the, the incidents, and you can Google these things for yourself, but in the Roman Empire, about one in three people in totality were slaves. And so it was very, very, very common. So as Paul uses this word, he uses it in that light. The third thing that we would note is the prevalence of it. Look, the institution of slavery, heinous as it was, as awful as it still is, was completely unquestioned. As a matter of fact, it was actually the Stoics, those who thought about things very deeply, that insisted that slaves were humans, they should be treated accordingly. Israel's law actually protected slaves. They made sure that they were treated fairly. And, and unfortunately, uh, when you got to our modern world, as can always be done, people take and misuse what God intends, and they turn it into something that God never intended, which is exactly what happened uh, in, in the slave trade that happened that has so horribly affected our country. Should have never happened, should have never been allowed, and in fact it was the Christians who ultimately were raised up against it that said this is absolutely wrong, we should never do this. The fourth thing was the, the frequency of, with which it happened. You, you, didn't, you, know, you didn't just wake up one morning and all of a sudden, generally speaking, you were in that position, but it could happen as a result of capture and war, default on a debt, uh, you, you couldn't support your family, you had no way for them to survive, and so you would end up in that place. And so destitute parents sometimes would even sell their own children to save the children. It was not to harm them, it was to keep them from starving to death. And so it's important that we look at it in that context. And then finally, the thing that we really have to look at, slavery during that day and time was not a racial issue. It cut across every bit of society. And so it was not something that was tied uh, to any one particular population, any ethnic group, any ethnos. It was tied to the entire world and the entire world's economy. Estimated maybe two to four million uh, slaves in the Roman Empire. And so by biblical definition, and this is why it's so important, we can't just simply take offense at the word and then pass it over because Paul was making a very, very, very clear statement when he uses the word slave. And we need to see that because that's who we are. I am a voluntary slave to Christ, and here's why. In loving devotion, I, Jeff Gill, have volunteered myself to a master, and his name is Jesus. Because I could not pay my own debt of sin, and neither could Paul. I had a debt I could not take care of. And so I voluntarily 
uh, entered into that relationship to be his servant and to obey his beck and call, his every command, to do what he says. And so in that sense, and only in that sense, as Christians, we need to understand what Paul was saying. And not when we hear that word, oh, oh, I'm not going to listen to that. I don't want to entertain that thought because it was an important part of what Paul was saying. He said, I couldn't pay my debt of sin. So Jesus, here's my life. Take it and I will be yours forever. That's why he said that. Now, praise the Lord, that's over. So anytime you hear that word, that's what I mean. Because I mean it in the biblical context. So please don't read it any other way. I couldn't pay my debt of sin. Neither could you. And so I voluntarily said, here's my life. I give it to you in exchange for taking care of my debt, which is sin, and the penalty of it, which is death. Thank you for buying me. That's what ransom means. That's what ransom means. That's how we're redeemed. Paul goes on to give his remaining credentials now. And when you look at these, Paul was an apostle. It means, the the word itself, apostle, means one who's sent by authority of another. In other words, someone has established a base of authority, and you send someone in that authority. In other words, an ambassador of the United States is sent in the authority, in essence, of the office of the State Department here of the United States, which is directly under the President of the United States. So when someone goes out with the authority of the State Department, they're going with the authority really of the United States people, with the people of the United States through the office of the president. An apostle was one who was sent under the authority of none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so there were a very unique group of men, and there were qualifications that they must meet. Those qualifications are found in Acts chapter 1. It says there in verse 21 of Acts 1, and therefore these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day he was taken up, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so the three things are taught by Jesus, baptized by John, and eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. And so Paul says, I'm an apostle. He gets a little bit of a pass because the, the exemption there was that he didn't travel with Jesus. But he did meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. You can find that in Acts chapter 9 if you go there. Paul actually spoke to this issue. Sometimes people say, well, you know, he wasn't really an apostle. Scripture says he was an apostle. So I'm going to believe Scripture over man's understanding of how he was an apostle. But Jesus himself met Paul on that road to Damascus. And he said, remember what he said to him? He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Why do you kick against the goats? So in that sense, we know that the Apostle Paul absolutely did meet Jesus. And he absolutely did hear from the Lord. And he absolutely did see him after he was raised from the dead. And he absolutely was baptized in the same fashion as John the Baptist. And so in that sense, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Paul writing of his own life, by the way, For I am the least of the apostles, whom I am not worthy to be called an apostle. In other words, Paul actually kind of agreed with those apostle doubters, if you will. Because I persecuted the church of God, but the grace of God, by it, I am what I am. In other words, he agreed, I'm an apostle. I'm the least of them. I probably shouldn't be one. But by the grace of God, I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. The Apostle Paul was responsible for a whole lot more conversions than the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Paul was responsible for about a third of the entire New Testament, when you look at it in totality. The Apostle Paul is responsible for recording all of the major doctrines of the faith. And so when you think about Paul's labor, if you were to make Paul not an apostle, uh, we'd have a tough time understanding justification by grace and through faith. Because he's the one that outlined it and described it. 
not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. And yet I, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. He says, look, I did it by the grace of God. And so laden with grace was the Apostle Paul's ministry. And therefore, whether I was, it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. In other words, he took no credit whatsoever for any of the things that God did through his life. He simply said, this was God's grace working through me. And I'm blessed to be called the least of the apostles. And so Paul says here in this opening uh, statement, if you will, look, I'm the least of the apostles. Second thing, Paul was a preacher of the gospel. Now remember, Paul was a Jewish rabbi. You have to think in Jewish terms. He was a rabbi. He was known as a teacher. When people would greet him, those that knew him would walk up and immediately say, Rabboni, rabbi, teacher, teach us. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a, he was a Hebrew attorney in that sense. He was a discerner of the things of the law. So this was a very brilliant man. But he says, in all of that, I was a preacher of the gospel. He was separated to the gospel and separated to the ministry of the gospel. And here's what happens. When you and I, when anyone trusts Christ, you have voluntarily given your life in the service of someone else. So whatever they're about, you're now supposed to be about. Amen? Jesus was about saving men's souls. How does that happen? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How, how will they be saved unless someone preaches the gospel to them? You, you see, what Paul was about is what we should all be about. We should all be about preaching the gospel. Paul was about preaching the gospel. He was spent on a special commission. He was sent to the nations. He was sent to the Gentiles. When you read that word there, it's actually the same word as nations, ethnos. He was sent to the nations of the world, and it was used to describe anyone who was not Jewish. And so it was the whole rest of the world was the way to look at it. So Paul was sent to take this gospel message to the whole rest. You talk about a large task. Now, if you work for a corporation, you take a job in a major corporation, normally you'll be given a, a, a district or some area that you'll be responsible for. Can you imagine if your boss brought you into your office and said, hey, I'd like you to reach the entire rest of the world except for Los Angeles? That's basically what was told to Paul. He said, you're going to be sent out to the Gentiles. The entire rest of the world as far as we would know it. Paul begins to just lay these things out. And, and not only that, he writes this letter to the heart of the enemy's empire. Paul has already written a letter to Ephesus, Temple of Diana, absolutely debauched city. We know from reading the book of Acts that there's this giant silversmith's riot and people are going crazy because this apostle's coming in and he's preaching this righteousness and people are looking at these silver, the silversmiths. Remember how they rioted because they're not selling as many gods as they used to and he's cutting in on their profit margin and the whole thing. So Ephesus was a wicked city. He also writes to Corinth. Corinth, not exactly a nice place either. But those two places together paled in comparison to Rome. Rome was the seat of the world's empire. And so Paul writes this letter, and in fact, he's going to go there, and he's not going to go there as a free man. He's going to go as a prisoner. He's going to go in chains to Rome. Now, I don't know about you, but not having your freedom and being sent somewhere and trying to accomplish a task, that's not exactly a recipe for success. And yet the Lord uses this incredible letter and it speaks to us this day and so paul is this missionary to the gentiles he preaches the gospel of the father the son and the spirit paul has some basic concerns for the church and i want you to see these basic concerns because they're the things that concern us today and he's really giving here in these first 17 verses he's kind of giving an outline of where he's going with the rest of this letter very often you and i would call it a forward or a preface in other words, if someone writes a preface to a letter or to some type of document, it kind of encapsulates where you're going with the whole body of the letter, so to speak. And Paul is doing that. He's sharing with us his concerns, the things that he would then elaborate on and absolutely flesh out and then put skin uh, on the skeleton and he would give them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And we're going to get to that next week. That's, it happens immediately. 
He begins to go after this whole concept that everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And he says, look, here's, here's the problem. Although they knew God, they, they, could, they could understand who he was by the things that were made. They didn't honor God. And in fact, they became foolish in their thinking. Their hearts were darkened. And so he's going to go there first. But before he does that, he shares the reason why. What he's trying to accomplish through the letter. Notice how he begins to to flesh these things out for us. Verse 5, he said this. He said, through him we've received grace and apostleship for the obedience to faith among all nations for his name. Among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, so he names, he says, look, I'm writing to the Roman Christians. Beloved of God. He makes it very clear. You see, one of the things that we have to come to terms with as Christians is that we know what we know about God because of the Spirit of God. And in fact, the carnal mind, someone who doesn't know the Lord, does not see things the way we see them. And so Paul tells us he's writing to Christians. So when you share spiritual things with your unsaved friends, your unsaved family, people who don't know the Lord, it should not shock you that they kind of get the blank look on their face like, what are you talking about? Because they have not yet received the Spirit of God. So what you're doing initially is exactly what Paul's going to do in the first chapter of this letter. You've got to kind of identify the issues. You need to give them a general synopsis, trying to explain to somebody who doesn't know the Lord about justification by grace and through faith. They're going to be going, just a waha huh? By hmm? They're not going to get that. They're not going to understand what it means to be a doulos, part of the douloi, someone who would give their life over willingly to someone else. They wouldn't understand there the lordship of Jesus. When you say Jesus Christ is your Lord, you may as well be saying to an unbeliever, Jesus Christ is a Martian. They don't understand it. They have no idea what you mean. And so he begins to share these things that are on his heart to all who are in Rome, the beloved of God, called to be saints. So he identifies who he's writing to, saints, those who are hagios, those who are the set-apart ones, those whom God's touched, their life has been transformed by the grace of God, they've received the faith of God as a gift, they received that gift, and then they acted on it in in a way to receive salvation by grace and through faith. And so they are the set-apart ones. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he says, For as God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Paul is so unbelievably specific in this opening uh, round of verses. He says, I, I, I serve my spirit, the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing. You want to know the secret to evangelism? Here it is. Without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. The message of the gospel, the power of God that leads unto salvation, for those who first believe and then those who don't, for those who do not know the Lord yet, if you're not praying for them, you haven't done the one thing that will do the most good. Sometimes people want to go and they want to argue and they want to pass out tracts and they want to do all kinds of, all those things can be good. But if you haven't prayed, you're going without power. We have to be people of prayer. I think one of the problems with our church, this church, is that we don't pray as much as we should. We get a lot of things right. We do a lot of good things. But if we would attach to it the power of prayer and say, God, we want to accomplish what you want us to accomplish, and without you, we can do nothing. And so we're going to make this known to you, and we're going to bang on the doors of heaven until you either tell us to stop or you do what we've asked because it's in your will. We need to pray. 
Paul prays that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. It's not one of those little bullet things that we all do. God bless my kids. I pray. That's a, those are good prayers. Don't want to dismiss those prayers, by the way. But you see, I, I'm making mention always. It's not an occasional thing. Making requests, if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. He's saying, look, it looks impossible from human's standpoint. I look at my situation, there is no way in the world I'm going to Rome. Now here's the crazy part. How does Paul get to Rome? He gets arrested. He's praying to go to Rome, and he wants to go see the Roman people. And so how does God answer that prayer? He gets jacked up in cuffs. He gets thrown on the hood of a cop car and, and put on a ship across the Aegean Sea. He ends up shipwrecked, of all things. And that's how God gets him to where he asked to go. So let me give you a little secret. Sometimes God don't do things your way. That was probably not how Paul prayed that prayer. Lord, please, could I be shipwrecked? Oh, I'd like to be stoned. Could I be thrown off the wall of a city too and, and you know, maybe go on a slave galley and get crashed on an island and nearly die and then make this, you know, the coastal route up to Patoli and somehow end up in Roman chains? That's probably not what Paul prayed. He was probably praying, Lord... You know, could I get on a 787 Dreamliner in Tel Aviv and, like, get, could I be in first class? Could I have roasted warm nuts and my brie just really nice? That's probably more how he prayed. You know, most of us don't pray, Lord, please, could I be, you know, just beat up for you? But sometimes God answers in ways that we don't expect and we don't want, actually. Don't be afraid to pray big prayers of a big God for big things. Sometimes you just got to let it go and let God do what he needs to do. Sometimes the routes in Christendom are a little bit circuitous, aren't they? That means around and around and around and somehow you slide in the back door. It's a great thing. Paul had a perilous journey. So he was a prisoner as well as a preacher. Probably not a combo that you would set out to, you know, say, I just want to be a prisoner so I can preach. So he's eventually sent to Rome as the emperor's prisoner to be tried before Caesar. But in the process of being tried, he writes this. You talk about the power of God working in ways that we don't understand. The very close of this letter, he's going to ask the believers in Rome to pray for him as he contemplated that trip. And man, it's a good thing he prayed or he probably wouldn't have got there, amen? Probably would have never made it. There's a pastor's heart in Paul, this incredible missionary. And as he prays for him, he's just, he's just pouring his life into them. He, he loved these people and, and, and it wasn't a bunch of people that he knew by name. He had a heart for a people group. One of the things that I always question when people, you know, I'd like to go into the mission field, I, do you have a heart for that people? Do you have a heart for them? Because if you don't have a heart, please don't go. If you don't have a heart for people, don't go. Pray for God to give you a heart before you go. Because if you have a heart, then you'll endure. If you have no heart, you will not endure. You go, you might do some good even, but you won't endure. You've got to have a heart for people. This ministry is not easy. It's hard. There's a lot easier ways to, to make your way around the, the journey of life than ministry. And so Paul had a pastor's heart, and he prays for these people dearly. And he's going to make some friends. He's got, we'll, we'll meet them along the way. Priscilla and Aquila will meet, and uh, beloved Persis. You know, we're going to meet some people that uh, befriended Paul. 
He was also in debt to them. Notice verse 13. And now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I planned to come to see you, but was hindered until now. Let, let me give you a little, the, a little secret here. The moment you set out to do anything for the Lord, you can count on there being some hindrances. Just count on it. Matter of fact, you can count it actually as, as a joyous thing. That's one, of those, that's one of those things that the Apostle Paul would have already told us in the book of Philippians. Count it all joy. Because the moment you set out to do anything from God, you're going to encounter some encumbrances on your time, your talent, your treasure, everything. You're going to be hindered uh, at some point in time. You may be even hindered by the Lord. The Lord may hinder you. The Lord may slow you down. You talk to anyone who's been in ministry for any length of time, we can all talk about our divine delays. Every last one of us. The things where God stalled us along the way somewhere. He was doing some work in our lives or maybe a circumstance or situation, and so there was a hindrance. It could have come from the Lord. It may have come from the enemy at work, just as 1 Thessalonians 2 reminds us. But he says, look, I've been hindered that I might have some fruit among you also just as also among the other Gentiles. And he's already written these letters. He's, he's been to Ephesus. He's been to Corinth. For I am a debtor both to Greeks and also to barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. And so he says, look, I, I, I'm indebted to you. A lot of people have helped us along the way. And again, it's such a beautiful picture of how the body of Christ works. The way the body functions, how many people are enablers of guys like me to end up in the pulpit. I guarantee you that that when I was in the height of my you know usefulness in the construction industry, most people were not looking at me and go, man, that guy's going to be a pastor one day. They were probably thinking, you know, maybe a mafia boss, that's possible, <laughs> that could work, maybe. Pastor, no way in the world. And along the way, people praying and investing in and, and being used of the Lord to bring to bear the power of God through prayer on my life, your life, our lives, the outreach of our lives combined. Had a team in India. That was from today. That was today. That's an outreach of your prayers. That's an outreach of your investment. They are debtors to you. The work that was being done there was a direct result of your faithfulness to pray, partner, and send. You see, as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul had this obligation to minister to Rome. He had the task, but others have the task to make sure he can do it. We need to take very seriously the call upon our lives to be engaged in full-time ministry, whether you're a pastor or whether you're someone who's a sender, whether you're someone who's a prayer warrior, it's a serious thing to take up the call of the Lord. And the enemy doesn't like it, so he's going to come against it. And God's going to allow those divine delays. The Greeks considered every non-Greek basically a barbarian. So when you see the word barbarian there, we think of it kind of like, you know, Conan or something, you know. But in this sense, anyone who was not cultured like a Greek person was a barbarian. Someone who couldn't sit around and talk about, you know, the, the great mystical thinkers, you know, Aristotle and Socrates. You know, you, you would have thought through all those people, you know, oh, well, you know, Seneca said this, the great Roman orator. You see, the Greeks saw themselves as intelligence and everyone else as fools. So Paul looked like a fool. He looked like a, a moron. It's like, you're, doing, you're going to do what? You, you see, when you think about this whole situation, you talk about crazy looking. That would look nuts to a Roman. You're the Apostle Paul from where? You're from the province of Palestine? Isn't that where we sent Pontius Pilate because we didn't have anything for him to do here? We send all the people, the, the, the underachievers go there. That's why we left the Herods in rule. You see, it, it looked like a recipe for disaster. 
But Paul was indebted to all those who helped him along the way. And because of that, that's why he desperately wanted to, to see them. He says in verse 15, So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. He says, look, I've been used other places. I'm a debtor to Greeks, barbarians, people who have helped me, other Gentile places. Colossae, Corinth, Ephesus. Is, I, I can't even imagine this man. You would have thought that after he got done in Corinth, it would have been retirement time for him, right? So you read those two letters, you're like, man, how do you survive another group of people worse than that? And yet Paul said, no, I'm not done. I want to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. That's a man on a mission right there. That's someone who knows why God put him on this earth and he's ready to do it. And all that we would have a church filled with people like that. And because of that, Paul had immense confidence. No wonder he was eager to get there. He, he was no longer one of those people that you would look at and, you know, he's trusting in himself. And so notice how he expresses this in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now imagine he's writing this to Roman Christians and they're in Rome. Imagine that, that these Christians are in sight of the Colosseum. Imagine that they've seen the Senate chambers in Rome. Imagine for a moment they've maybe even been to the gladiatorial conquests that happened inside the Colosseum. Maybe they're sitting in there when 10, 15,000 people are cheering and there's lions consuming gladiators. You got one dude who's from one of the poorest places in all of the Middle East who used to be a Jew, who's still actually a Jew, but now he's a believer in Christ, so he's completed, but he's abandoned his, in essence, his heritage that way, and he's taken up the cause of this Messiah who is this useless guy that the Romans put to death because the Jewish religious leaders didn't want him. This is their Messiah? And you're coming to the seat of power of the entire world, Rome. You can imagine Caesar Nero. He's like, the apostle who? He's from where? And he wants to do what? But Paul's not ashamed because the reason he's going there is not to win intellectual arguments. The reason he's going there is to preach Christ and him crucified alone for the remission of sin. Amen? You see, so he was confident in his mission. He says, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God and salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first, to my own people first. Jesus came to the Jews first. And also for the Greek, to the Gentile, to the non Jew. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I don't really care what Caesar thinks. And you talk about some holy boldness. This is a guy who's been abandoned by his own people, the Jewish people. They would have had nothing to do with it. He was considered a traitor. The Christians are all kind of wondering if he's ever going to turn around and bite them. It's like, well, he used to be a persecutor. You know, he used to kill us. And yet the Lord sends this guy to perhaps one of the most volatile places on the planet as far as a Christian's concerned. And also for the Greek, for in it, in what? In the gospel of Christ. In what? Ask yourselves the right questions. In what? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Notice it doesn't say from faith to works. It doesn't say from faith to knowledge or understanding. 
Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It is the gift of faith that allows you to believe. Without faith, acting on your life and my life, no one comes to Christ. You have to have faith. It's not mental assent. It's not understanding. It's not whether you get creation science or not. It's whether you have faith to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the apostle says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This man, Jesus, whom John the Baptist pointed out, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one whom Peter would preach about. The one whom you put to death. The only name under heaven whereby men may be saved. This one who came into town on a donkey. And the people shouted, Hosanna. Is the savior of the world. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. For in it, the righteousness of God. Have you ever thought about God's righteousness? He's perfect and he's holy. And he demands, get this, he demands that same perfection out of you for you to get into heaven. Now, praise God, he provides a way for you to have that perfection. But it's not you. It's him. It's Christ. In it, in Jesus Christ, the Lord, the righteousness of God is dealt with. Because if you showed up to heaven with your own unrighteousness, any little smidge, a little tiny bit of leaven, you're dead. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. And here's where Martin Luther read this verse over and over and over. And he said, the just shall live by faith. Not the just shall live by the law. And so he says, look, this is, this is the origin of it. It's the gospel of Christ. This is the operation of it. It's God's power. It's not our power. It's His power. That's how it works. It's the power of God. It's not my power. Anybody tells you, hey, I, you know, I saved myself. You can't save yourself because you don't have any righteousness of your own. It's impossible. That's works. By the works of the law, Paul will go on to say, is no flesh justified. Not one person will ever get into heaven on their own merit. Isn't that crazy? But to as many as received him, to them, he gave the power to become the sons of God. You'll be given that righteousness. You'll be clothed in it, cloaked in it. But the outreach of the gospel that we can see here, it's very clear. It's to anyone. It's to everyone who believes. It's everyone who believes. Isn't that crazy? To believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. That's all it takes. What happens after that? It's going to change your life. But the outreach is to everyone who believes. That's why it says go and, and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because you can. Because anybody can receive a gift of faith and be saved. It was about you understanding something. There's some of us that aren't going to understand much. There's some of us that can understand a lot. And so the outreach of the gospel is anyone, everyone who believes. And finally, as we close tonight, we find the, the key to the whole book. You know, the answer to Seneca's remarks as a Roman orator, as someone who's a philosophical person, he said that Rome was a cesspool of iniquity. Juvenal, also a, a Roman philosopher, he said Rome was a filthy sewer into which the dregs of the empire flood. It was into that environment the just shall live by faith. Now, you and I would go, well, there's no way that God can reach San Francisco. 
Let's personalize it for a second. There's no way that God can reach that gangbanger. There's no way that the Lord's going to reach that child molester. You know, see, we could all put our little things in there that we would go, there's no way God would ever sit anyone there, and it's just, it's pearls before swine, it's pearls before swine, it's pearls before swine. Don't even bother. The Apostle Paul says that Josh shall live by faith. And he says, to prove it, I'm going to go to the worst place on the planet. And I'm going to preach the gospel, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm just going to tell people about Jesus. God doesn't ask men to behave in order to be saved. He asks them to believe in order to be saved. Not behave, believe. Make sure you get that right. Because there's a lot of people that tell you you need to behave a certain way in order to be saved. Now, if you are a believer, you're going to behave differently. But it happens after you believe, not before. That's that saving faith that works in our life. Verse 17, and we'll end with this tonight. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The battle cry of the Reformation is this verse. There were five things that the Reformers really laid hold of. Five things that flew in the face of what the Catholic Church was teaching. Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses, that disputation of the power of indulgences. He put on there a list of all these things, basically selling God's forgiveness, buying people, in essence, out of purgatory. There were all kinds of crazy stuff that was in that list. But the reason he did that, he says, look, there, there's no, you can't purchase it. It's free because the just shall live by faith. It's a gift. Faith is a gift. You can't buy. It's not for sale. And so as they cried out, sola scriptura and scripture alone, soloi, Deo gloria, only for the glory of God. Solo Christo, only because of Christ. Solo gratia, only in grace can salvation come. And solo fide, total confidence in the gospel. What they were really saying was, look, it's all about God's grace. And that comes through faith. And so as we embark on this journey, we're going to find out that Jesus Christ is both the the just one and the justifier when we get to chapter 6. So what he demands, he himself is, and he gives it to you. That's a pretty good deal. I don't know about you, but if you ever have something in your life and you need it, and, and you don't have it and can't produce it, and someone comes along and says, not only am I that, but I'm going to give it to you, that's a pretty sweet deal. That's your salvation by grace and through faith. He's the just one, and he gives you his justness before God. And so as you look at these things, as the just shall live by faith, Romans explains who the just are. Galatians tells us how we ought to live. Hebrews tells us that that's by faith. And, and as you look at these things, it, we end up with the gospel of grace. And so it's going to be a great time as we journey through tremendous depth of understanding of who God is what he expects of us, what he knows we can't do, and yet he himself will do for us by his grace. The righteousness of God received by faith is the thing that makes it possible for us to live godly lives. Amen? Would you stand with me and we're going to pray. We'll close with a chorus. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, the worship team comes back up. We'll have some pastors up front. Maybe you're that person. You came in. You go, man, I just, I don't know what this church thing is. But I just know I want to go. God sent you here to hear that Jesus loves you. And he came to this earth to die for you. That you might be freed from the bondage of sin. And it's penalty death. And so, if that's you... 
I'm just going to simply invite you to come up with one of the pastors and pray to receive that grace gift. Do it tonight by faith. You don't have to know everything about it. He'll show you what you need to know. But God wants to work in your life. So let's pray. Father, thank you. I pray if there's anyone here tonight, God, that you by your amazing grace, you would pour into their lives, Lord, the truth of the gospel message, that they would be saved. Lord, we know it's simple, because if it wasn't, none of us would ever come. But we know that it's effectual. To all who believe, they shall be saved. It's not an if. It's just simply a win. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight is the night of salvation for some. Bless us and encourage us and strengthen us. We ask these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen.